You may be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. In the movie Arrival, Amy Adams plays Louise Banks, who's this linguistics genius, and she's brought into this massive situation where she's to help communicate between aliens and earthlings. And there's these aliens who have landed 12 spaceships all around the Earth. And she's like this one sort of savant-like linguist who can maybe understand what they're trying to say. And as she works to understand the complex logograms that the aliens use for communication, there's these intricate circles that they sort of draw all at once where they can communicate like paragraphs worth of information in one quick movement. These, these circles use language in a non-linear way, right? I'm reading stuff one word after another, but, but this is all kind of together at once. As she continues to work to try to understand what they're saying and then translate it, Louise herself becomes so immersed in their language that moves beyond time, she herself begins to experience time in a non-linear way. I'll spare you the sci-fi mumbo-jumbo. It's a beautiful film and entirely worth watching. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is the storytelling that our culture is obsessed with. Most of our popular films and books are either locked in a material world without any guiding meta-narrative, where individual happiness really seems to be the only sense of moral framework available. Or there are these fanciful tales of superheroes or humanity being contacted by other creaturely life forms from outside our galaxy, and that contact with them begins to bring about change, and it begins to bring about a new form of moral meaning-making. Which is to say, essentially, as a culture, we have locked God out of our stories, but our hunger for him still persists. As the famous first line in Julian Barnes' great novel says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This is part of our location. We live in a world that doesn't believe in God, but still misses him. But there's another layer to our topographical map that helps orient us to our location because we are also in the season of Easter, the great 50 days when we celebrate the powerful bodily resurrection of Christ, an event that if you have eyes to see it has brought light to a people dwelling in darkness. And we're already pushing toward another pair of feast days in the church's year, Ascension and Pentecost, when we celebrate that Christ has ascended bodily to the Father's right hand where he intercedes for us ceaselessly and he has sent the Holy Spirit to us. As we heard so beautifully in our gospel lesson. Our scripture lessons this evening, as they so often do, work as a chorus harmonizing with one another. Christ's promise of the Spirit in St. John's Gospel, the story of St. Philip being carried along by the Spirit to bring the word and sacraments of the Gospel to someone hungry for God, and then St. John's Epistle where we hear that it is by the Spirit that we have knowledge of Christ's abiding presence in us. 
And I would suggest to you that in the same way that Louise was moved into a new experience of time by studying the language of her alien visitors, so we as the spirit-indwelt community will experience time in a different way if we study the word of the spirit and the spirit of the word. If you were to go all the way back the time of Christ and the apostles, you would know that the Jewish people were for the most part expecting resurrection. Not all of them, but most of them were. And they were longing for the day when God's spirit would be poured out on all people. And they believed that it would come to pass at the very end, on the last day, the great and terrible day of God's judgment, when all the nations of the earth would be called to account and Israel would be vindicated as God's chosen people. So when Saul encounters the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, his life is completely changed because he has encountered something from the future. But it has crashed back into his present. To say that the resurrection has begun and the spirit has been given is to say that the future has crashed onto the shoreline of the present. One of the ways that we have of talking about this is to say that the church is an eschatological community. That's a big $10 word. To be an eschatological community, a community of the eschaton, the last days, the end time, is to be rooted in an experience now of that which is to come. We're experiencing something from the future now. When Christ went about preaching the gospel at the beginning of his ministry, he declared that the kingdom of God had drawn near. And the eschaton, the end, is when God's kingdom will be all in all and the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. The church, as Father Alexander Schmemann so often said, is a sacrament of the kingdom. Right? Sacraments are the way that God communicates himself to the human person and the church, the community of the spirit, is a sacrament in the world of God's kingdom. It is in the church, in her life of daily prayer, acts of service and love to God and neighbor, and in the proclamation of the word, in the sacraments, and most primarily in what we're doing now, in the Eucharist liturgy. In all of this, the church is an epiphany of God's kingdom. It is a city set on a hill, illuminated by the light of Christ, animated by the breath of the Spirit. The foreignness of the liturgy isn't due to a fetishization of the past. It's not because we're looking back to some golden age that happened way back when or because we're religious Luddites. The liturgy is not indexed to the past. It is indexed to the future. The foreignness of the liturgy is rooted in the fact that we are here learning a language from another world the language of God's kingdom, the language of heaven. You've no doubt heard that liturgy means the work of the people. And at a deeper level, the idea of liturgia, where we get that word, is a work of public service done by a smaller group on behalf of a larger group. And in this case, the church is doing work on behalf of the world. But what's so important to recognize is that this work is not something that the church comes up with on her own, but is rather a continuation of the liturgy of Christ in heaven. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Literally, he says, Christ is the liturgist in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. 
It's been said that this later Gia, this work of Christ and his church on behalf of the world is the work of preparing humanity for the eschatological communion at the heavenly banquet. We're practicing now something that is coming and awaiting all of us in the future. This leads to an important distinction about what is going on here. If you think of the gathered church as primarily a time of learning or being reminded about the things that Christ taught and did, then going to church can easily become just another activity in your life that might get squished out for other things. But if you understand that it is here where the Spirit teaches us the language of the Word, that we are brought into the eternal present of God, that we truly experience and participate in the things that we are proclaiming, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, then you begin to understand that this work of liturgy is an expression of the Spirit who enlivens us in baptism by uniting us to Christ in his death that we might live in him and he in us. It is here in the Eucharist liturgy that we become who we are in Christ by conspiring with the Spirit, learning to breathe with the Spirit, inhaling and exhaling as we proclaim in word and sacrament and acts of mercy the incomprehensible love of God. Being an eschatological community in this sense is far more difficult than it would seem because it cuts so deeply against the grain of our culture. We live in a world that is run by outcome. Everything is a productivity hack, a method of self-improvement or an increase of corporate profits. But a community of the spirit entails a posture of self-forgetfulness. It is to cease our preoccupation with productivity and outcome and self and instead turn our gaze upon the majesty and glory and beauty of God. Romano Guardini makes this distinction by talking about how much of our world behaves and thinks in terms of a gymnasium. Each piece of equipment is very useful, but each piece of equipment, each movement, each thing that you're doing in a gym is highly calculated. It's tailored down to isolate one set of muscles. It's very purposeful. It's geared toward outcome. It is, in a word, utilitarian. It's there to accomplish this one specific thing in each of its areas. But Gordini goes on and says that the gathering of the church in the liturgy isn't like going to a gymnasium, right? You can't come in here and think, okay, well, the sermon is like the cardio and then the Eucharist is doing leg day or whatever it is. No, it doesn't work like that. It's, the liturgy is not like a gym. He says it's like a forest. And even the difference between a gym and a garden is immense, but between a gym and a forest, it's even more so, right? Because in a forest, not everything can be accounted for in terms of production value and utility. You won't know why something's there until you remove it. And then you'll probably find out in a terrible way why it was there. The Japanese have this phenomenon called forest bathing. The idea is that you just go out into the woods and you breathe 
and you notice what's around you and you immerse yourself in the forest. And I think if Ramana Guardini had known about this practice, he would have said, this is exactly what the liturgy of the church is like. To an outsider, it seems utterly useless. Even to an insider, there is no tangible outcome, no immediate product. And that is exactly the point. Because it's about encounter. It's about being drawn in by the Spirit in love, the same Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts. And so we are drawn upward to the Father through the Son. This is just one big, long, amazing date night. <laughs> it's not going to the gym. Being an eschatological community has so many repercussions, it will take another 2,000 years of sermons and theological reflection to tease out all of the implications. Being Christ's mystical body on earth involves all sorts of acts of charity and mercy to the people around us. But if we are going to do that in any effective way, if we're going to have any kind of production or outcome, we have to first do the hard work of getting lost in the forest of God's glory on display for us in the liturgy. We must be steeped in the language of the Spirit, whispering again to us in the Eucharist so that we can truly be people from the future living in love and service in the present. Amen.